0: We are in a series in the book of Ephesians called Whole and Holy. And as you can see, our topic for today, or as you'll see in a moment, is grace and good works. And often grace is described as undeserved favor or getting something you don't deserve. And as I prepared for this sermon and started thinking about um, how challenging it is for us to understand this concept and really get it. And I think that's for two reasons. And one is a perspective outside the church, and the second is a perspective inside the church. So I decided these obstacles were so great, the best thing I could do would, to lay, would be to lay them, name them out up front here. So here we go. Obstacle number one, grace is largely foreign to our culture. If grace is a concept that entails, I don't need to do anything to be deserving, I'm not sure there's a greater antithesis of that than our North American culture. We're taught at a very young age that ambition, singular focus, laser-like concentration, hustle, doing the work, are what make money get us degrees, win campaigns, help us score touchdowns, sell albums, help us achieve any goal we want. We get to where we are because of how hard we worked and what we sacrificed to get their grace. That's not going to get you ahead in life. That's for the lazy, the losers, the couch potatoes, the weak, those without ambition. In this way, our North American culture divinizes human achievement," Eugene Peterson's phrase. Almost all the celebrities, successful leaders, and famous people we know have gotten to where they are by their own or their families merit. Our therapeutic culture is obsessed with self-improvement. To try and say to people in our culture, you have value beyond what you do feels irrelevant, like we're in the dark ages. It's not that the concept is hard to understand. It's just that it's not a real value in our world. It's rare to see someone valued quite apart from what they do. That's the first obstacle we face from outside the church, from our culture. Obstacle number two, grace is familiar. And speaking of grace, I see my slides totally did not come in at all in the way they were supposed to. So there you go. I hate when you have to learn... uh, the topics you're preaching about, right? Grace is familiar but often misunderstood concept in the church. This is the second obstacle. In this case, the challenge is more theological, and this is largely due to our Protestant heritage. So if you know your church history, you'll know that two of the five tenets of Protestant Reformation appear in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which is in our passage for today. Sola gratis sola fide, by grace alone, by faith alone. The reformers literally died on that hill. They were rightly opposed to a works righteousness that had crept into the church that made salvation something we earn by our good works. They brought us back to the truth in the gospel that we cannot earn our salvation. It is a free gift from God. Far be it from me to challenge that. Grace, not works. And yet, as so often can be the case with us human beings, this corrective at times led to an overemphasis on grace, where there was no place for works. It led to some in the church then and now, to focus so much on how we can't do anything to earn God's favor that any concept of obedience or living a lifestyle in conformity to Jesus' way of life was suspicious. We can't do anything to earn God's favor, so what's there to talk about? Just live in grace, man. You're loved. What's, whatever there is to do has already been done. Salvation is only understood in the past tense. God did it for us. In these churches, any language around how we're to really live for God, salvation in a present tense, made people a tad nervous. And if your anxiety level went up just a bit when I put up this slide, Grace and Good Works, I rest my case. With these challenges before us, I understand why many commentators say this passage is an extension of Paul's prayer we looked at last week in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. There, Paul prays for his church that he loves in this way. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now, that's a rich phrase, and it's so fitting when the topic is grace. The eyes of your heart opened, the light going on. So many of us know the concept of grace here, but we really need to know it here. And that is my hope and prayer for us today. For as always, what we find in the Bible is an accurate depiction of humanity. In this passage, we hear two truths about us that seem antithetical yet are both true. We learn what we are by nature and we learn what we can be by God's grace. Hear now the word of the Lord from Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're going to look at this passage in three sections. The human condition, as described in verses 1 to 3. God's response, described in verses 4 to 7. And the interplay between grace and good works in verses 8 to 10. So let's start with the human condition, or to put it another way, What are we saved from? Verses 1 to 3 describe the former way of life we knew before we knew God. And it's not a pretty picture. In fact, it's a pretty unpleasant and uncomfortable image Paul uses, so I don't want to belabor it, but it's poignant nonetheless. Verse 1 As for you, you were dead. There is hardly a better image than a corpse. what Paul is communicating here. Unresponsive, hopeless, lifeless. Paul says that he describes our life before God in this way. We were not able to do what needed to be done. We were without hope for change in our predicament. And even if we were living physically, we weren't really alive spiritually. We were lifeless. Just a few verses later in chapter 2, verse 12, Paul will put it like this, without hope and without God in the world. That is a sorry statement of our condition. Yes, there are multiple factors influencing our behavior. We see the trifecta here that the church would later dub the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, as in the cultural influences from society, the flesh not our physical tissue, but our natural bent to twist good desires and make them self-centered. And the devil described here as the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Paul is describing a complex set of interconnected influences uh, that inform our behavior, external pressures from the world, internal pressures from our nature, and the devil who uses both to draw us away from God's ways. Nevertheless, the blame still lies with us. We were by nature. This is one part of the description of humanity that speaks so accurately to our experience. We aren't just influenced by the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're enslaved by them. Verse 3, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. I don't think I need to give a lot of examples for this. I think we're all too familiar with the ways we fall short of the life God wants for us in our personal lives, in our homes, our workplaces, our churches, in the city of Minneapolis, in our nation, across the globe. It's why we don't like listening to the news. Sadly, humanity is remarkably creative when it comes to destroying and hurting one another. As one writer said, sins both cause death and are evidence of it. And that leads to the summary statement about our condition in verse 3b. We were by nature deserving of wrath, or more specifically, God's wrath. Now that word trips us up, ironically, because of our inclination to sin, When we hear wrath, we think of someone losing their temper, possibly becoming violent and vengeful, and that is not at all consistent with the character of God. What the Bible means by wrath is closer to the concept of justice. God has a hostility towards evil. He refuses to compromise with it. And while He has not exercised justice fully yet, He will one day set this world right. And when you see it that way, you can see how his wrath is not incompatible with his love, but is actually an extension of it. The challenge for us with this description is that we don't want to put ourselves in this category. We think this is reserved for those on Skid Row or in maximum security prisons, not us. But Paul doesn't make that distinction. In fact, he puts all humanity in the same boat. He starts with the emphatic, as for you, but he quickly moves to all of us also lived, and like the rest, we were by nature. And as he'll make the case later in the book of Romans, any falling short, even just a little bit of missing the mark, is still missing the mark, even if it's certainly not as bad as other people. The verdict is in, without God, we are dead, vulnerable to the forces around us, enslaved by our internal desires and unhealthy habits, and prone to emptiness, to not really living. Now, that would be pretty depressing if that was the end. But thankfully, the next two verses, two words, are some of the best two words in the Bible. But God. The NIV renders it, but because of his great love for us, God. But in Greek, the order is, but God, for emphasis. The adversative conjunction, but, introduces a contrasting idea that's going to recalibrate all the previous points. To say that people are depraved does not tell the whole story. It does not mean people are worthless or do not have value. In fact, the opposite is true, but only because of God. Humans are depraved, prone to sin and brokenness, but we are also dignified. We are given great dignity and honor because we are God's creation. He loves us. In fact, he will die to be in relationship with us. Listen to what God's response is to our human predicament, or to put it another way, what are we saved for? Look at verses 4 to 7. Paul is drawing a sharp contrast here that we need to see. The main verb in the sentence is made alive, as in God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. When we were unresponsive, unable to initiate change, God did. When the situation was hopeless, God stepped in. When we were lifeless, walking around in bodily form but not really living, God gives us new life that animates us and gives us a purpose and calling. And here the contrast gets really extreme. Instead of deserving wrath or justice, we become recipients of his love. But not just love, his great love. And not just love, his mercy. And not just mercy, his rich mercy. That word is used throughout the Old Testament for God's covenant-keeping, chesed love, a steadfast love that's manifested in not just mere sentimentality, but shown in action. And not just love and mercy, His grace. And not just grace, the incomparable riches of His grace. And not just that, but His kindness to us in Christ. Human condition, wrath. God's response, Great love, rich mercy, incomparable riches of His grace, kindness. The scale appears to be tipped. But here's a point I'm not sure is always highlighted. There are actually three verbs here that God has done for us. Look at verses 5 to 6. Made alive, raised, seated. What's interesting here is that all three of these verbs have the same prefix soon attached to the verb and then Christ. And so it's depicted in English with the word with. So made alive with Christ, raised with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly realms with Christ. This is what I introduced in in the first week as a critical component for Paul of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We are in Christ. And if these verbs sound familiar, then thanks be to God, someone is listening. This is from the doxology in the first chapter. Raised and seated are all the same verbs used without the prefix this time. In chapter 1, verse 20, when Paul is going off about the power of Christ in his prayer. In the heavenlies is used here to... Uh, chapter 2, verse 7, just as it is in chapter 120, when Paul is affirming that Christ has power over every conceivable other power, human or spiritual. Incomparable riches here is the same word used in 119 to describe the incomparable power, the mighty strength of Christ. The point Paul is making is just as Jesus was raised from the dead, seated in the heavenly realms, and has authority over all other powers, so too do we. We who have come to faith in Jesus, who have received this grace, who trust him as our Lord and Savior, have this power too. We are in Christ, which means we no longer need to be enslaved to the world, the flesh, or the devil, They will still have influence over us, but they do not have the same power over us, just as they don't over Christ. We can now live into that new reality. We can now be a new people, which is why a few chapters later, Paul will say to them and to us that old way of life, it has to go. That's not who you are anymore. Ephesians 4, to 24, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put on your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitudes of your mind and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We are not just saved from sin and death. We are saved for a new life in Christ. Maybe this is a good reminder for some of us today that a changed life is possible. Yes, I know old habits die hard, but if this text is to be taken seriously, then we need to see ourselves as no longer enslaved by the influences of the world, the flesh and the devil, but instead raised and seated with Christ. We need not to succumb to these pressures. It may be a multi-pronged approach that we need to have to overcome thoughts and behaviors and desires that represent the former way of life. And that will likely include every aspect of our person. We are whole beings after all. But by his grace, we can become more holy. If you're feeling the need to address some area of your life, I want to encourage you to ask for a prayer, ask for some ideas from some trusted friends here. Enter into the way of life God has for you. So we've looked at the human condition. We've looked at God's response. Now let's look at the connection between grace and good works. As I mentioned before, the Bible makes perfectly clear that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. Verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That phrase, gift of God, is literally God's is the gift. <laughs> to place emphasis on the fact that the gift is sourced in, originates from God, there is nothing we can do. This is all God's divine initiative. The word used for grace here, charis, literally means gift, <laughs> In our consumeristic culture, sadly, the word gift has been distorted. Like when you get an email or a letter in your mailbox that says, claim your free gift. And then when you read the fine print, it's like you got to spend $200 to get this free product of $50. That is not a gift. I was not planning on spending $200. That is a discount or an offer, but do not call that a gift. Now, if you qualify for financial aid for a college, Given as a grant, not a loan, now that's a gift. Maybe this example will help. Think about your highest debt right now. Maybe it is a student loan. For most of us, it's probably a mortgage. Whatever that number is, you have it in mind? Imagine getting an offer by someone to pay that debt in full. Can you imagine the weight that would be lifted from you if that happened? Can you imagine how life-changing that would be for the rest of your life, the financial freedom that would provide for you? I cannot adequately describe the grace of God to each one of us, but that's a hint at it, a debt we cannot pay ourselves, life-changing. Now, like most gifts, We must accept or claim it. We just went through the college application process last year for our oldest son, and there were many stressful moments. But one of the little stressful moments is that after you're accepted, or after they extend a financial aid offer, you have to formally accept it by a certain deadline. And if you don't, it's no longer valid. So how many times do you think I checked to make sure I had accepted? (laughs) Yes, we want to go. Yes, we want your money. Similarly, God has extended the offer for all of us to enjoy life with Him, real life, not just physically breathing and moving, but really living. But we have to opt in. We have to receive it. It's up to us to say yes to this generous gift, and we do so by responding in faith. It's not that faith is our part of the equation and, and grace is God's part like it's equal. It is all his part. But faith is the means by which we receive this gift. We are saved by grace through faith, not from ourselves, period. And yet, as I mentioned at the outset, it is possible that this phrase be misrepresented or misunderstood or misapplied. This has been true from the beginning of the church right down through the present day. Maybe you've heard an acquaintance at work, or maybe you've thought this yourself at times. Say something along the lines of, I like sinning, God likes forgiving, the world is admirably arranged. Sometimes this is referred to as cheap grace. It's the same faulty reasoning Paul later on in Romans 6 is going to combat when he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so grace may increase? By no means, he says. That misses the point entirely. Just because it's a free gift doesn't mean there's supposed, not supposed to be some kind of response from us. And here I wanna to return to that phrase. It is by grace you have been saved. Because it occurs twice in this passage, verse five and verse eight, because it's so critical. This phrase, have been saved, is in the perfect tense in Greek, which is the tense used for an event, yes, that happened in the past, whose effect still continues in the present. And so the NIVs, have been saved, is a good translation. It's better than were saved. But on this one, this is rare for me to say, I actually like the old King James Version because it puts the emphasis on the present tense a bit more. For by grace are ye saved, are present, saved, past. Salvation is both tenses. And this is why when we emphasize Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we should at least read the next verse as well. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Sounds like Paul is talking out of two sides of his mouth, doesn't it? It's not by works. No, no, no. But we are God's handiwork, created to do good works. This reminds me of a similar dichotomy in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, you continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Oh, because it's God who works in you to fulfill his good purpose. How do we make sense of this? As I've said before, Working for salvation is heresy. Working out our salvation is basic Bible, meaning none of our good works can earn us salvation. Nothing we do will make us worthy of this gift God has given us. But when we have received this, gifts, this gift, our lives will show evidence of that. That's what's behind the phrase in the beginning of verse 10. We have been saved for the purpose of, with the results of doing good works God has in store for us. Works do not earn our salvation, but they are evidence of it. They do not merit salvation, but they're a byproduct of it. This is what James was on about when he uses the same powerful metaphor of being dead in James 2, in the same way faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Grace is manifested in gratitude. That's the role of good works. As we close today, I wonder which emphasis you need to hear. Probably most of us here need a good reminder of the free gift of grace God has given us, not because we merited it, but because of God's gracious, loving, merciful, lavish character. It can be arresting to pause and reflect at how antithetical to the gospel this mindset is. We know that that's how it works in the world, but not in life with God. May the Holy Spirit confirm this grace in your spirit, even when your experiences and interactions this week may call that into question. But some of us may also need to enter into the good works more, not to earn favor as if we could, but as joyful response to his grace. Maybe we've been playing the grace card as a way of not having to engage our lives with areas we know we should do differently. May we have a greater sense of the good works God has for us that he longs to see take fruition in our lives for his glory. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, I continue to pray that you would open the eyes of our heart. It is so hard to see this truly that we may grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and as a result in the good works you have for us so that others may see your goodness and grace. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake.